0: how do you deal with an unfair life? That's a question I want to ask everyone. How do you deal with an unfair life? When you believe that your life is unfair, that life has been unfair to you, how do you deal with it? Different people deal with different things uh, in different ways. It depends, I guess, in what kind of unfairness that life has been thrown at you. For example, a mom of young children who is perhaps dying from terminal illness? Is that that kind of unfairness as a mom who's still at the peak, should be at the peak, yet has to say goodbye to their young children who are still going to school? Happens every day. Happens every day. Or a young child who's dying of terminal illness, A brain cancer, perhaps. Barely seeing the life of school, maybe in early primary school, yet all her life, all this child's life, been spending in and out of hospital. How do you deal with that kind of unfairness? Or perhaps a, a group of youth going out at night going to a convenience store around the corner and get hit by a car on a hit-and-run and the grieving parents have to deal with the sudden death of all the kids how do you deal with that kind of unfairness in life or even a perhaps even a lighter one that you may be able to relate how do you deal with a much more successful sibling whom your parents perhaps favor more than you growing up. How do you deal with that kind of unfairness? You know, sibling rivalry is real. If you have sibling, you know this. Uh, You may not say it out loud, but deep down, you, you feel it. Perhaps your sibling is more beautiful, more handsome, smarter, taller, shorter, bigger, stronger. I don't know what it is, right? How do you deal with that kind of unfairness? You say, I I didn't ask to to be born this way. I want to be like my brother. I want to be like my sister. But hey, that's that's your lot. How do you deal with that growing up? So that's the question we're going to address this morning. How do you deal with an unfair life? To a different degree, right? And if you're still young, and I think the degree of unfairness can only increase in your life, rather than decrease. As Christian, we ought to know how we're supposed to deal with this. What is the biblical way? What is the Christian way of dealing with an unfairness in this life? If you are lucky enough to grow up in a family that loves you unconditionally, you go to school that all your friends are beautiful and friendly and kind, and you have never experienced this, let me tell you, when you go to work, you will experience it. When you go out into the world, you will experience this and I think I I quoted this before, but let me just say it again. Some of us may feel that we are invincible from what we call terminal illness or from cancer, say. But cancer, one in four person in the world will experience cancer in their life. One in four. If there's more, more than four of us in this place, you know what that means. So the first part of Gospel of John, we've been going through the Gospel of John. This is the, I think, 25th sermon on the on the Gospel of John. The first part, the first 12th chapter of John is what we call the book of signs. And in the book of signs, in the first 12th chapter, there are seven signs that Jesus performed. And today is the sixth sign that Jesus performed. There's only one more to come, but this is the sixth one. And in this, Jesus has been teaching us so far, te- Jesus has been teaching us about himself. He said, I'm the light that was sent from heaven into this world that is in darkness. And he's, of course, say that he is the true light that come, that the Father sent down to he- from heaven to earth. But now Jesus shows us in this passage, John 9, an example. What does it mean for Jesus to come as light into the world that is in darkness? What does it mean in practice? All right? What does it mean for the world in darkness in need of Jesus? Why do we need Him? Jesus shows us in this passage why the world in darkness needs Him as the light, as the true light. Because some of us don't even realize that we need Jesus, or perhaps your colleague, your friends don't know that we need Jesus. Jesus shows us why we need Him. So how do you deal? Let me go back to that. How do you deal with an unfair life? See, being in the light, the first thing I want to say is this: being in the light helps us to see better, right? If it's in the dark, you can't see well. In light, you can see better. Being in the light help us see better. But not only that, it helps us to deal with an unfair life. Being in the light not only helps us to see better, but help us to deal with an unfair life. So if you're in the light, it will help you to deal with the unfairness in life a lot better than those who are not in the light. Now, so this is what we're going to look at. Three things, the cause of suffering, the unfairness of life or suffering, the cause of it, the courage in the midst of it, and finally, the comfort we may get in the midst of it, in suffering. So the cause of suffering, the courage in the midst of it, and the comfort in it, in suffering. So the cause of suffering. Let's read from verse 1 to 2. As Jesus passed by, he saw a blind man from birth. As his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? The question that the disciple asked is more common than we may first thought. Because when unfairness happened, when suffering happened, it's natural to ask, whose fault? That's what the disciple asked. Jesus, whose fault? This man was born blind. Is it his prob- his fault that he's sinful? Or is his parents' fault? So that's that's what they ask. And it's very common, right, as parents, if your parents, when when your children don't turn out as you have planned, right? I mean if you have children growing up, most, most parents would say, Yeah, I didn't plan for him to grow up into that kind of child and so I you know, I planned this way, but no, it it didn't turn out that way. When your children didn't turn out as planned as you have planned, what do you say? You say, Well, have have we failed as a parent if they turn out to be bad? You know, not the way you want him or her to be. As a parent, you say, Is it my fault? Is it our fault? Are we too lenient? Did we give him too much money or too much freedom or not enough freedom? You ask that, is it our fault? But there are parents who think like, man, I'm, I've been doing the right way. Then you would blame someone else. You say, oh, it's, it's that. It, it's his fault. It's her fault. Or it's the, the school's fault. It's his friend's fault. He didn't hang out with the right group of people. At the root of, it, root of all these questions, is the same, right? Whose fault is it? Either you blame yourself or you blame someone else. Whose fault it is? That's the root of all this reason. Now, even when sickness comes, even with cancer, people tend to f- find fault, right? Whose fault? Is it my lifestyle that caused this? I got this cancer because I ate too much fried chicken? Or is it because of genetic, in, in the sense that then you blame your parents, It's the same, isn't it? Whose fault is it? Who am I to blame for this problem? Who am I to blame for this unfairness in my life? Why do I deserve this sickness? Why do I deserve this child? Why do I deserve these parents? Why do I deserve this and that? Who is to blame? That's the root. And then Jesus said to his disciple, In verse 3 to 5, let's read from that. Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I'm in the world, I'm the light of the world. Jesus says, no one's fault. It's not this man nor his parents that the works of God might be displayed in him. That's the reason, Jesus said. Jesus said, the answer is clear. When unfairness hits your life, sometimes the answer is no one is to blame. Some of you, perhaps, when you look at your life in this place, I don't know you, each of you personally, but if you look at the unfairness that happens in your life, perhaps you blame yourself. Perhaps you're that kind of person that say, well, it's me. I'm I'm the problem here. You're you're being hard on yourself. And Jesus is saying to you through this passage, no, it's not your fault. Perhaps so that the work of God might be displayed in your life, that you grow up so difficult. You you may have screwed up your childhood or your uh, teenage years or whatever it is that you have stuffed up in your life. Jesus said, no, it's not your fault it happened that the works of God may be displaying you. But perhaps you are the one who don't blame yourself, but you blame everyone else. It's your sibling. It's your more successful sibling that destroy your life. Or your parents who are so strict or so lenient. Some kids are like that. Some kids blame their parents because they say, my parents is never there. I can do whatever I want to do growing up. That's why I'm, I'm so screwed up right now. It's my parents' fault. There's no discipline in my house. Perhaps you're that kind of person who just blame everyone else. You have this victim mentality. And you said, no, it's not that either. It happens to you so that the works of God might be display in your life. See, both people who are religious and non-religious people tend to blame one, to use one or the other. Either they blame themselves or blame others or their circumstances both religious people and irreligious people, but Christianity say otherwise. Christianity is the only one that say life is a lot more complex than that. It's not always you can blame yourself or someone else in the unfairness in your life. Christianity say there's a third option. The third option is that the works of God may be displayed in your life. See, for a Christian, suffering may be without reason, but it's never without purpose. That's a huge distinction here. Suffering may be without a cause, but we can have the confidence that it is not for nothing. As a Christian, we have the options to believe, to have confidence that God works in us for His glory. In our passage today, Jesus say, neither the man or someone else is to be blamed for this man's blindness, but rather so that the works of God may be displayed in him. Perhaps God is speaking to you this morning. If you've been blaming yourself, or perhaps you're blaming someone else or your circumstances, God say, no, no, no. God want to use your life for His glory. Perhaps you even say, you know, if you, you, you're not convinced, you say, well, Pastor Freddie, that's all good, but I just can't see how God's work may be displayed in my life. I just can't see it. I hear you, but I can't possibly see it right now. Well, that is fair, because Jesus is not saying that we will always be able to see it clearly. And um, perhaps it's this. If we can see all the reason and the purpose for suffering, perhaps then it's no longer suffering. Think about it if you can see the reason and the purpose for your suffering clearly, like it ha- it's like a blueprint, perhaps your suffering is no longer suffering. If you know that God trains you in such a way and you can see the purpose is you're going to be successful at the end, you don't see that as suffering, would you? You see that, well, this is just a way to get there. It's not suffering. So there are certain parts in our life that God hide from us, that allow us to trust Him in such a way that, God, I don't know everything, I can't see everything, but I trust You. But I trust You. Even though we may not be able to see clearly everything, the purpose of God in our suffering, in the unfairness that we receive in our life, perhaps not in this lifetime, but we will in eternity. We will. So one thing that makes us suffer, perhaps, is the mystery of suffering itself. And we ought to embrace that. We ought to embrace that. Does that mean we shouldn't pray for God to show us and teach us? No, of course we should pray. But when He doesn't give us everything, show us everything, we must accept that. We must accept that. So in darkness, not only we cannot see, Physically, but more so in this passage, God is dealing with our spiritual blindness. Not physical blindness, spiritual blindness. When facing an unfair life, we tend to blame ourselves or someone else or our circumstances, but when you're in the light, this is what happens. You can put your trust in the one who gives life. You no longer put trust in your life, in your career, in your ability to see, to plan, but you put your trust in the light. You put your trust in Jesus. So when you give your life to Jesus, Jesus say, when you're in the light, when you trust me, you're no longer blind spiritually. You will be able to see. It may not be clearly, but at least you'll be able to put your trust in Him. The second thing, courage. How can we have courage then? That's the cause. How about the courage in the midst of suffering? See, life has been unfair to this young man. He didn't deserve this, right? That's what we say. That's what Jesus says. It's not his fault, not his parents' fault. So he was blind from birth. So this is what happened in verse 6 and 7. Let's read this. So what Jesus do? After he said, no, it's neither of them. Verse 6 says this. Having said these things, this is what Jesus did. He been on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud, covered the eyes with mud, and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. Siloam means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. See, only a small percentage of blind people actually totally blind. Very small percentage. Most blind people can see at least distinguish between darkness and light. When they go in the light outside, they, they know, I'm outside, this is bright. Um, so only small percentage are totally blind. So what happened here is, could be very high chance this man was not totally blind and Jesus made it worse for him. So it's like one of those things, when you close your eyes, pretend you're blind, you can see that there's light or no light, right? when you close your eyes. But then you put on this cover on your eyes so it can sleep like in, on the airplane. It's totally blocked out. So for this man, when Jesus put a mud on his eyes, Jesus made it worse. He can't even distinguish now there's it's light or dark. That's what happened. But I don't want you to miss this, the courage that this man has to obey Jesus that he barely knew. Jesus said, go now and wash yourself in the pool of Siloam. Is this man seeing yet? Can he see yet? No, in fact, Jesus made it worse. Yet he obeyed Jesus. I don't know how far he has to walk to the pool of Siloam, but that does not matter. The point is he obeyed Jesus to walk in even darkness than before to the pool of Siloam to wash his face. The man was sent by Jesus to the pool of sand, right? Why pool of Siloam? Why why not any other pool? Perhaps Siloam was the closest one, perhaps. But the reason that the the, the evangelist John mentioned it, the pool of Siloam, which means sand, tells us something about this. It tells us the significance of this. It's not so much about the pool of Siloam. So don't go to Israel and say, if you have illness, say, I'm going to bath myself in the pool of Siloam. That doesn't work. That doesn't work. It works because Jesus asked this man to do so, not because of the pool of Siloam. And the point here is not the pool, but who sent the man. And Jesus said, I'm the sent one, sent from heaven. I'm the light that was sent from heaven. The Father sent me. And now I sent you to the pool of Siloam to wash yourself and be healed. So, healing comes when we obey the one who sent. And that's the courage that this man has. In the dark, he was pretty much in the dark. He walked in the dark to the pool of Siloam, and only then he started to see. So, this man showed courage through his obedience to God. Not, not with all the blueprint laid out for this man. Sometimes we want that, don't we? We want all the blueprint plan out for us. God, show me, prove to me before I take the step. God say, go. He's like, no, 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 you tell me first. What's going to happen? If you're not going to tell me, I'm not going to move. But that's not how God works. Story after stories, incident after incident in the Bible, you read, God say, go. Then I will show you. Then you will know. God will not lay out all the plans for you before you take a step of faith and you in the direction of obedience. God will not. So some of us, God is speaking to us this morning, take that step of obedience, even though you may still be in the dark, even though you may not see everything clearly, take that step. Trust me, Jesus said. You don't need to understand everything to believe in Jesus because that's not how obedience works. Delay obedience is disobedience. So, God is sending you today, God is sending me today, just as God is sending this blind man to the pool of Siloam. He's sending each and every one of you to wherever God has put you, perhaps in your university, in your church, in your neighborhood, in your workplace. Where is God sending you today that God says, trust me, obey me, and yet, So far, we choose to disobey Him because we say, God, what if, what if, what if, what if, what if? God said, no, believe me, trust me, just go and do it, obey me. What is God is telling you to obey this morning? Because some of us, we are so afraid to obey God in where God call us to or send us to because we say, what if they think I'm stupid? What if they think I'm gullible? What if they think I'm dumb to believe in all these things called... Christianity. What would my friends think if they know I'm a Christian, if I'm a follower of Jesus? What if they reject me if I started to share my faith? See, we don't obey the reason deep down is because we do not truly know who sent us. See, to the degree that you know who sent you to that degree that you can obey that person. Let's say you're at work and your colleagues say, Aaron, just, just do this, okay? And you say, but that, I, I don't know, man. Like, should I do this? And no, colleagues says, just do it. Believe me, do it. It's very different than if your boss... The boss of the company that owns the company, the founder of the company, say, Aaron, just do it. It would be very different, would it? The action is the same, but it's very different because of the one who sent you. And Jesus say, to the degree that you know who I am, the sent one, Jesus say, to that degree you can obey me or disobey me. For a lot of us Christians, we don't want to obey Jesus because we don't truly know who he is. When he say, you are called to be light and salt in where I put you. Not on Sunday, but your Monday and Monday through Friday. That's where you need to shine. Follower of Jesus, are you doing it? Are you obeying me? Yet in our head, man, God, they will think I'm stupid. Jesus said, you don't know me. If you know me, you would obey me. So this man's neighbor saw him. So the neighbors know this man has been blind from birth. Now he's like seeing and walking around, playing cricket on the street. What is he doing? right? And he brought this man to the Pharisee to be asked questions, to be interrogated. That's in verse 10 to 12. Let's, Let's read that. So they said to him, then how were your eyes open? The Pharisees asked. He answered, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, Who is he? He said, I don't know. This is the man called Jesus. So when he said the man called Jesus, you can sense that he didn't know him, right? I just know somebody called him Jesus. So I was blind. Duh. You ask me, I don't know him but people call this man Jesus. And this is what he did, right? So he told them what happened. And it's very important for us to not miss this, that he said, this is the man called Jesus. So he doesn't have personal relationship with this man called Jesus. He's just here say, this is Jesus. But he knows what he has gone through in his life. And he experienced that, the beginning Right? Sometimes we think big miracles like this, this is what you need. But no, this is just the beginning. For most of us, we have experienced this opening of eyes, the beginning of our journey with Jesus, but we stop there. We just know this is the man called Jesus. We hear who Jesus is from the pulpit. Your relationship with Jesus is as far as what your pastor tells you who Jesus is. Beyond that, you have no idea who Jesus is in your personal life. You have not experienced him beyond that. This is where the stage of this blind man is. He said, I don't know this man. People call him Jesus. Where are you now in relationship to Jesus? Is this where you are? But notice this man did not stop here, though. So, he said, this is the man called Jesus. Jesus. And in verse 17, so we jump a few verses down in our Bible, verse 17, when they ask him again, so they say to, again to the blind man, the Pharisee, "What do you say about him since he has opened your eyes?" Notice what he saying now. In verse 17, "He is a prophet." Now he knows a little bit more about Jesus. First, he said, well, he's just, people call him Jesus. I don't know him. That's what he said. Now he said, I know, he's a prophet. So there's a progression here of growth in his relationship with Jesus. Some of us stuck in the first step. God enlightened us, opened our eyes. We get ourselves baptized. We know Jesus. But our relationship with Jesus is only as far as church. And it stopped there. But this man did not stop there. He now confessed he's the prophet, but didn't stop there either. He didn't stop there either. And keep going into the end, towards the end, verse 38, 35 to 38. Jesus heard, so this is after the Pharisee cast him out, like, get out of here, because he said, why do you keep asking me the same question? I already told you. Do you want to become Jesus' disciple as well? this is when when the Pharisee had enough of him and cast him out. And Jesus, in verse 35, heard that they had cast him out. And having found him, he said this, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, Who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? He didn't know Jesus, you see. And Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. And this is his response. This is the third progression. He said, Lord, I believe. No longer sir, he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. The word sir and Lord in Greek is the same, but the right context tells us there's a progression now. It is true the first time he said Lord and translated in our English Bible sir because he doesn't know who he is. But now we know there's a progression because the response afterwards is he bowed down and prostrated himself before Jesus. Now he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped. The purpose of suffering, the unfairness in our life is to deepen our love for Lord Jesus. What is it that you're going through in your life today? Jesus saying, it's no one's at fault here. It's that the works of God may be magnified, may be displayed in your life, that your love for me may be deepened. So it can only happen, how can it happen in your life? Through daily obedience. Even though you may not see clearly, but through our daily obedience, our love may be deepened for our Lord. Some of us think, like, I, you know, I've been Christian for so long, I'm going nowhere. What does it take? It takes what this man do. When he was blind, when Jesus seemingly made it worse for him, he walked to the pool of Siloam. He doesn't know who Jesus is. In fact, his situation was worse. He obeyed. It's through our daily obedience our love for God may deepen. So how long have you been a Christian? This is my question to you. Don't say out loud perhaps, because we may embarrass ourselves. How long have you been Christian? How long you say that you, when you, the, the first time you say, I put, my, I put my trust in you, I put my faith in you. Some of us even say, from my mother's womb, I'm a Christian. But how's your relationship with the Lord today? How deep is your relationship with Him? I know many Christians who have not grown in their love for Christ for many, many years. They've grown in the first few years of their relationship with Jesus, but stuck. They're just stuck. In fact, some of them that I know, not only stuck, they have grown cold. They have gone backward. Is that you this morning? You see, when you're stuck in your walk with Jesus, when you're not growing in your relationship with Jesus, you're going backward. Even though I say stuck, the reality is this. When it comes to relationship, there's no such thing as stuck. Stuck in the sense that you're not, you're not going anywhere. It's the same. If you're in relationship long enough, husband and wife, I'm, I'm speaking to you especially. If your relationship between couple, in couple is not growing, you are not stuck. You're going backward. The same is our our relationship with our Lord Jesus Christ. If our relationship with the Lord is not growing, it's not really staying the same. It's going backward. We are living things. Relationship is living thing. Any living thing is either grow or dying. You may not see it yet like a plant. I have a life plant at home. Uh, Recently, I noticed... um, that one of the leaves turned yellow, like completely yellow. Does it turn completely yellow overnight? Of course not. It's been suffering for so long. Give me water, give me water, and I just ignore it, right? So before it fully turned yellow and kind of dead, it's dying slowly. If your relationship with your Lord Jesus is not growing, it's not deepened, let me let me say this to you it's dying just because you come to church and hear the preaching and you hear the sermon even some of us you know we don't get what we hear 100% i can ask you afterwards for morning tea what was the sermon like you probably get 80% if you're good but most of us we get 50% if we pay attention but if I ask you next week, what was last week's sermon? What did you learn about it? Well, 20% you'll get. If you rely on coming to church and that's your only diet, that's your only time you have a relation with Jesus, let me say this, your relationship is dying. Imagine speaking to your spouse once a week for two hours. You don't believe me? Do that at home. Don't speak to your spouse for a whole week except when you come to church or on the way to church. And see how it turns out. It'll turn yellow and dead before you know it. Just because you come to church regularly, if that's the only thing that you say, I'm a Christian, I have a relationship with Jesus, that's just not going to cut it. That's just not going to cut it. Do something about it. So how do you live it out? obedience? When you hear, you obey. When you hear, you obey. When you hear, you obey. When do you obey? Your Monday to Friday, that's when you obey. It's easy to obey in church, isn't it? It's, it's totally different when you're out there, Monday to Friday, in the real world. So if you want to deepen your love for God, you must have the courage to obey Him, even though you may not see everything clearly where He's taking you. Even when you don't have all the answers, trust Him. Finally, comfort in suffering. So that's courage in the midst of suffering. Now comfort in suffering. We can find comfort in the midst of suffering. Some of us, that's difficult to take in. But I hope to show you that we can actually find comfort in our suffering, in all the unfairness in this life when we know who Jesus is. Because I already said, a lot of us don't know who Jesus is apart from what you hear on Sunday. If you know who Jesus is, you will be able to find comfort, whatever life throws at you, no matter how many lemons life throws at you, being thrown at you, you can find comfort in that. Let's read from 24 to 27. This is the second time the man was asked questions was by the Pharisee. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, the man said, Well, whether he a sinner, I do not know. How do I know, right? One thing I do know, though, that I was blind. Now I see. That's what I know. So they said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered them, dude, I've told you already. You just wouldn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples also? I paraphrase, obviously. So the, the man testified boldly in front of the Pharisees. He, did, he said, like, come on, I've told you before. Why do you keep asking me the same question? This is very interesting, the boldness that comes from this man, especially what comes afterwards. So John, the evangelist, gives us this account, contrasting the faith, the boldness, the courage of this man to the boldness or the lack of from this man's parents. Let's read about the testimony from the blind man's parents. Verse 18 to 23. The Jew did not believe he had been blind, right, and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked him three questions. They asked the first one: "Is this your son? Is he blind? Was he blind? Was he born blind?" Second question, and then third question: "How, how can he see now?" And his parents answered not in three but in four. He said. Is this your son? Yes, we know. We know this is our son. Was he born blind? Yes, he was born blind. How does he now see? Well, how he now sees, we do not know. Nor do we know who opened his eyes. He said, I don't know how he see. And then he answered the first question that was not asked. We don't know who killed him. And then the parents say, ask him. He's of age. He's old enough. He will speak for himself. His, now, this is the reason why his parents say this. He say his parents say this thing because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, "He's of age. Ask him." The contrast that John gives us, this man's testimony, bold, courageous testimony, compared to his parents is to show us the motivation here. He says, his parents said this thing because they fear the Jews. They do not want to be cast out. They do not want to be rejected. Unlike the blind man, his parents have no courage. courage. Verse 22 tells us they love status. The parents love their status in synagogue more than they love God. They don't want to be kicked out. They love the honor they get from people than the honor they get from God. Is that why we have not obeyed our Lord as we should be? Is it because we honor the opinion of our colleagues more than the opinion of God in our lives? Is that why? That's certainly the reason that these parents did not obey or have no courage, like their son, because they want status, they want honor from the Pharisees, from the people, the authorities, rather than from God. See, Two people can experience the same tragedy in life, the same unfairness in, in life. One may complain and grumble and feel miserable, but the others who experience the same tragedy, the same unfairness in life can give thanks to God. Why? 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 Why is that? Two people can experience the same tragedy in life. One can complain and be miserable, but another can have courage to trust God and faith to trust God and love God even more through suffering. If you have relationship, true relationship with God, when suffering hits your life, you know what's going to happen? You will deepen your love for God. Your root in love for God is going deeper, not weaker, so when you see Christian in the suffering, who grow deeper in love with God through their suffering, you know that his relationship with God is not superficial, but it's real. They may experience the same suffering, but the response, the result is different. So when you are suffering, ask yourself this. Why is that you are suffering? in that suffering. Because the same suffering for one person can be suffering. For another person, they could grow deeper in their relationship with God. So when you're suffering, ask yourself, why is that you are suffering? This is another way of asking. What makes it, whatever it, what makes that a suffering to you? When obviously it's not a suffering to another person. Why being rejected by your colleague is a suffering to you? When to John, meh, I don't care. Why? Why is that? You are suffering. What makes it? What makes that thing a suffering to you? That's a deep question, because if you uncover that, you suddenly realize there's something deeper at work as to why you suffer, and that something, when you discover it, is your little God, quote-unquote God, a little God in your life. For example, when you're made redundant from work, for some people, that's meh. No big deal. For, For others the wall come crashing down. One of the main reasons the um, Japanese committed suicide, one of the main reasons is career, failure in career. Why is it so big for them? Well, for some of us, that's not a big deal to be let go from our job. Why is it a suffering to you when you're made redundant, for example, when you lost your job? Is it because you have loved money over Jesus? Is it because you valued your career over Jesus? Have you made that thing your little God over Jesus? Now, when you're sick, Not everyone who's sick suffers in the same way. But when you're sick, some of you may be suffering so much more. Why? Perhaps because you love being healthy. So much more than you love Jesus. You love the idea of being active, to be able to do anything you want to do, to be free. But as, as soon as you're no longer free, confined to a wheelchair, you feel like, my life is ruined. I cannot play golf anymore. I can't play badminton anymore. I can't do this anymore. I can't do that anymore. Is it because you love that thing now a lot more than you love Jesus? Uncover that. So who is your real God is my question. You suffer oftentimes because your real God is the little God that is lurking underneath. Your real God is not Jesus. So before Jesus was sacrificed on the cross by the Father, crucified, there's this incident where he told Simon Peter, if you've been Christian long enough, you know Simon Peter denied Jesus. He even swear three times before Jesus was crucified. So before this incident, before Peter, Simon Peter denied Jesus, Jesus spoke to him. Before the incident, Jesus spoke to him, and that's in Luke chapter 22, verse 31. Jesus said this, "Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, when you have turned again, Jesus give him a clue here right? You will betray me, but you will turn. When you turn again, this is what I want you to do, strengthen your brothers. See, Jesus knows, right? And tell Simon Peter, even though Simon responded, to Jesus, I will not betray you, Jesus. Not. I will never do that. But of course he did. See, our society believes this when it comes to suffering. Two things, that suffering is random, Right? Suffering is not targeted at you. Come on, like it's so random. And there's no purpose in it. That is why when you suffer, our society tells us, what? Run away from it. As far as you can, run away from it because suffering is random and suffering is no purpose, has no purpose whatsoever. But that's not what the Bible teaches us. Jesus tells Simon Peter, you will betray me. You will suffer, but when you turn, when you repent, there's a mission for you. Strengthen your brothers. In another sense, Peter, through his suffering, he has to go through his betrayal of Jesus, his suffering, so that his relationship may be deepened, so that he may be purified through that experience. Through the fire, he may be purified. Of course, we know Peter is one of the pillars of the church, He was one of the pillar of Christianity, of the movement in the early church. This is someone who betrayed Jesus to to his face. Not once, not twice, but three times. He even swear, I don't know Jesus. So in his suffering, he was purified, he was strengthened, and his love for Christ deepened. So the Bible teaches us this, that suffering is part of God's sovereign plan for us. It's, neither, it's not random, nor it is without purpose. It may not have reason, but it's never without purpose. So that through it, through our suffering, through the unfairness of life, our heart will be purified and our love for Christ will be deepened, rooted, strong. So the apostle Paul says this in Romans 8, verse 1, a famous verse. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What does it mean? Three things. God has punished your sin on his son, Jesus. Therefore, there's no condemnation in your life. There is now therefore no condemnation in whom? In Christ Jesus. Because God has punished his son, Jesus and Jesus, the second thing is Jesus has paid all your sins and my sins fully, completely. Your past, present, future sin, God paid off. Jesus paid on the cross. Therefore, there is now no condemnation. You will not be condemned anymore. The reason is this, because God has paid it all, God will no longer punish you, will not double charge for the sin that you committed See, sometimes we think that we deserve it because we have not obeyed God, because we haven't been good. But if we believe that, then Jesus' death will be for nothing. Then God will be unjust because He would double charge for the same item. It happened to me once, and it made me so mad when the credit card appeared, charge on the credit card appeared twice. I called them and say like, what is this? Can you, can't you see? It's $24.50. Twice. Well, lucky it wasn't a big amount. Imagine if it's a big amount, right? Like $10,000 charged twice. You'll be horrified. You'll be unjust. When you believe that you deserve it because you haven't been good then you have believed that God is an unjust God. He would need to punish His Son for your sin, and He will now punish you, condemn you for your sin. That's why the Apostle Paul said, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Are you in Christ Jesus? Do you believe in Him this morning? God is not punishing you. When you're suffering, you be comforted knowing that is not punishment. So, how can you be comforted? Because you know, this is not punishment. Jesus has paid the punishment. He had taken it upon Himself on that cross. Remember, it may not be without reason, but it's never without a purpose. John 9, verse 35, later on, much... Later on, Jesus, uh, that we read, when the man was cast out, this is what Jesus said. Well, this is what happened, and Jesus said to this man, Jesus heard that they cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Do you see Jesus' love here in that? Can, Can we read that again and slow down and just look at this? A man has just been cast out by the society In his suffering, this is what happened. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And having found him, he said, Do you believe in me? I hope you see how much Jesus loved this man. Because Jesus is doing the same thing to you and me this morning. Jesus heard the man and he went out to find him. Jesus heard you, and he went out all his way to find you. And he asks you today the same question, do you believe in me? We will not see this in months, but in John 14, we're not in chapter 9, but in John 14, verse 15, Jesus said this, if you love me, You will keep my commandments. Let us pray.